Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennial Money Medical. My name's Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we will discuss the concept of net asset value, often termed NAV. This topic suggestion was done by Jay, so shout out to Jay if you're listening. Then we have a question from Anon about non-bank lenders. We can't do this podcast without the support of Altus Financial. If you're anything like me, you will understand that us medical professionals often have unique financial affairs from taxation minimization requirements, multiple entities for accounting, or asset protection for the extra risk we take on. Altus Financial understands these issues and more. Whether you're established in your career with a solid income and looking for next steps or you're after advice about buying into a practice, Altus Financial is for medical professionals who want to feel good about their finances. To speak with Altus Financial about your situation, click the link in the show notes or head to altusfinancial.com.au forward slash M3M. Let's get started. Now, if you want me to discuss a specific topic or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now to the main topic, what is net asset value or NAV? To understand this, let's briefly have a look at the concept of net worth, which is more relatable to personal finance. Net worth is basically all the total value of the things that you own minus the total value of any liabilities you have, that is, things that you owe. It's as simple as that. When it comes to companies, though, there is something called book value, which is awfully similar, but some minor differences. The book value of a company is an accounting definition, where a company's total value minus any liabilities it may have. Now, it also includes the value of tangible assets and intangible assets. So it's a bit more complex than just a pure net worth statement. So for example, me being a doctor and having the skill set of a doctor, that's an intangible asset that, you know, if you're trying to evaluate me in terms of my book value, obviously you need to take into account everything that I own minus everything that I owe but also some of the intangible assets that I have. And that includes my skill level as a doctor. Now, to understand these concepts, I have discussed book value and all that sort of stuff back in episodes 77 and 78 as part of the Fundamental Stock Analysis series. This was recorded way back in 2020, I think it was, um, if you're interested. So go back and listen to them. Now, when it comes to net asset value of a company, it's very similar to the concepts of net worth in personal finance, and also book value in corporate finance. But it's got a bit of a twist. And that twist is when it also considers the total outstanding units or shares in a particular fund or company. 
That is, NAV is mainly used to give a particular ETF or managed fund a barometer. Let's get into the weeds a little bit. It is basically defined as the value of a fund's assets minus the value of its liabilities. It's a typical representation on a per share per unit basis, which then forms the denominator of the formula. So the formula is net asset value equals total value of assets minus total value of liabilities and divide everything by the total outstanding shares or units. It's as simple as that. The value of assets includes the total value of all the underlying securities the fund owns, and the value of liabilities includes all the liabilities and fund expenses. So does the NAV of a fund change over time? And the answer is yes. For ETFs, because they're traded live during the trading times, there is something called INAV, which is Indicative Net Asset Value. This information is usually provided by the ETF managers every 15 minutes or so on their website. For managed funds, on the other hand, it's usually provided at the end of the day because mutual funds can only be bought and sold at the end of the trading day. So why does this system exist? To understand this, let's look at what happens when you create an investment fund. And let's use an example. Amy is a fund manager and wants to create a fund called Fund XYZ. The fund aims to track the world markets, which achieves significant diversification. It's going to do that by buying the top 2,000 companies in the world, but buying it based on the company's market capitalization. That is, the bigger companies occupying more of the fund, compared to smaller companies. Now, there is a call-out for investors who want to invest in this fund. A large group of investors put out their money to invest in this fund. And that money is collected and used to buy securities of companies which are within this fund. Each investor gets a specific number of shares or units in proportion to the invested amount. As each investor is free to sell or redeem their fund shares or units at a later date and pocket the profit or loss. And every day at the end of the trading day, investors can buy more or sell some of their portfolio. In order for this process to work effectively and efficiently, investors need to know the price of their shares or units. And to know the price of the fund shares, we need a mechanism to price the shares or units. That is why NAV is relevant. That is, when the net asset value per share updates, the price may also update. Now, we'll discuss this a little bit later in the episode. So, when calculating a company or fund's assets, what does it include? Number one, it includes the value of all the securities in the fund as calculated by the closing prices of securities held in the fund. Number two is total cash. Number three is total cash equivalents, so bonds, money market equivalents, term deposits, dividends, etc. Number four is receivables. Any amount that's owed to a business, etc., if a business invoices you and you haven't actually paid that invoice, that business can count that as money receivable. In other words, it's incoming money. Number five is accrued income. That is money earned but hasn't been received. To put it simply, if you get paid fortnightly, for example, in your job, your income accrues in that fortnight period even though you haven't received it yet. So those are the five things that you need to know when calculate the assets of a particular fund. What about when calculating liabilities? That includes number one, any debts outstanding, so any loans to banks, etc. 
Number two is any fees or charges owed to various entities. Number three is any accrued expenses. So when a company purchases supplies to run the company, but the supplier hasn't issued an invoice for that expense, that is an accrued expense. And number four is staff salaries, utilities, operating expenses, management expenses, market expenses, audit fees, etc., etc. Now let's use an example then to calculate the net asset value per share of a company. Amy is an optometrist who is interested in buying an ETF called ABC ETF. She notices the net asset value per share or unit is $3.90. So how did they come up with this figure? Here's a calculation which Amy has looked into. The total value of securities in that fund is $200 million. The total cash and cash equivalents is $20 million. The accrued income for the day has been good at $25 million. The short-term liabilities is $2 million. The long-term liabilities is $40 million. An accrued expense for the day is around $8 million. And the total outstanding units or shares is $50 million. So let's calculate the net asset value per unit or share using the formula. So how do we come up with the figure $3.90? Well, it turns out the total assets are $245 million minus the total liabilities, which is $50 million, divided by the total outstanding units or shares is $50 million. And that gives you a figure of $3.90. So the net asset value of this particular ETF called ABC ETF is $3.90. So what does that $3.90 mean? This $3.90 represents the fund's market value on a per unit basis. This is what can be used to then figure out if the fund is trading at a premium or at a discount to the market value. Note, if the value of the fund's assets goes up, the net asset value also goes up. This means if the total outstanding shares are the same for the fund, then the net asset value per share or unit also goes up. Now let's use an example to highlight this point. Amy decides to buy the ETF called ABC ETF. It has a net asset value of $3.90 per share. About three months later, there's been optimism in the markets. Most of the companies in that ETF have had their share price increase because investors have now value those companies at a higher level. This means the net asset value of ABC ETF has likely also gone up. The total outstanding shares are still relatively the same, which means the net asset value per share has also gone up to $4.50. Now, when I say per share and per unit, I'm using it interchangeably. The reality is, for ETFs, the indicative net asset value frequently changes during the trading day. So, does the net asset value per unit actually help Amy make any investment decisions? Is it actually relevant? Now, to answer this subsegment, we need to use another example. So, let's say Amy reviews her options for her other ETFs. As her own ETF has gone from net asset value of $3.90 to $4.50. In comparison, there are some of the other ETFs and their net asset values. ETF 1, 2 and 3 is trading at net asset value of $1.90. ETF XYZ is trading at a net asset value of $2.80. ETF LMNOP is trading at a net asset value of $3.50. And of course, ETF Devraga, the best of them all, is trading at a net asset value of $100.
Notice how ETF Devraga is actually the most valuable because the ETF investment objectives closely mirror that of Devraga himself, who of course has the best investment strategy ever. Now, jokes aside, what does this actually tell Amy? Does it tell Amy that her ETF is actually worse off than ETF Devraga? Does it actually tell Amy that her ETF is in fact better than the other three ETFs which have a lower net asset value? Actually, comparing net asset values of various ETFs actually doesn't mean anything at all and doesn't tell Amy anything valuable. It's a bit like looking at share prices of various companies and determining the highest share price company has done better. Now, refer to Investing Truths, which I've done, and Stock Market Myths, which I've also done in terms of episodes, and I do these recently where I debunk this theory. The share price of a company tells you nothing about a company. So comparing net asset values per unit of various funds actually doesn't tell you much. So how do we use net asset value to compare funds? Now, what I think is relevant is the trends are far more important. Amy will need to look at the trends of net asset values per unit between ETFs and then compare to the benchmark index and then see how her ETF has performed. Trends and comparisons are important in investing, but always do it in context. For example, if Devraga ETF has gone from net asset value of $50 to $100 in six months, while Amy's ABC ETF has gone from $390 to $450 in that exact six months, then clearly Devraga ETF has performed better. Now, if Devraga ETF has gone from a net asset value per unit of $50 to $25, whilst ABC ETF for Amy has gone from $390 to $4.50, then clearly Amy's ABC ETF has performed better. So comparisons and trends are really important. Now, there is one other concept we need to discuss before finishing up with net asset value, especially net asset value per unit or share. What does it mean when we say a fund is trading at a premium or discount to the net asset value? This is where the price doesn't equal the value. Let's use a real life example to highlight this concept. At the time of preparing for this episode, which is 30th of March 2022, the national budget has just been announced. And there is basically free money for everyone. It's a bit like Oprah has come out and giving out free cash to everyone. Oprah, not Oprah. And just remember Josh Frydenberg doing the same thing. He's basically come out and given free cash to everyone, except he's not doing it out of his own money. He's doing it out of our collective money, the taxpayer. Now, the net asset value at the time of preparing for this episode of VAS, which is Vanguard Australian Shares ETF, is $96.72. That was at the end of 29 March 2022. But the current price of Vanguard Australian Shares ETF at 11.44am on the 30th of March 2022 is actually $97.36. So why is there a difference? There are two reasons. The net asset value was calculated at the end of the trading day, which was yesterday, and that was before the budget announcement. It also means it's now trading at a premium to the last known NAV. So when you buy VAS, you need to take into account the net asset value is not exactly the same as the price it's trading for. If VAS price drops to, say, $95, and its NAV still remains at $96.72, it just means that VAS ETF is trading at a discount to its net asset value. Essentially, this allows for profitable trading opportunities for active ETF traders who can spot and encash 
on such opportunities and time. I hope this clarifies the concept of net asset value. Let's recap. NAV is net asset value versus net asset value per share or per unit. You need to know the the difference. Number two is how does it compare to the concept of net worth and book value? Number three is how to calculate the NAV per unit or share. Number four is what does it mean and why it needs to be interpreted in context. Number five is what does ETF price and NAV mean and what it means to trade at a premium or at a discount. Now, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I have a question from Anon who asks about non-bank lenders. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back. Before we finish up, I had a question from Anon who asks, Hi Dev, I'm in a position to shop around for a home loan and I've come across non-bank lenders. What are the pros and cons of such lenders? Anything I should be looking out for? Now, it's a very, very good question. And when people ask me questions like this, I really want to go into a lot of detail. So bear with me because I'm going to talk a little bit about how banks actually make money compared to non-bank lenders on how they make money. And then we're going to go on to the pros and cons of a non-bank lender. So let's define what a non-bank lender is. Now, it's a financial institution who only deals with loans and they don't hold deposits. That's really important to know. Because this means they're not governed by the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, APRA, but are governed by the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, ASIC. Now, they still have to abide by the Uniform Consumer Credit Code, which is basically a code of conduct, which ensures lenders, bank and non-bank, make borrowers aware of their rights and obligations and put sufficient checks and balances in place to ensure borrowers can repay their loan. Now, this didn't happen in America during the GFC. So people got lent money they couldn't afford to repay. And of course, the domino effect was the housing crash, which led to the global banks being bankrupt really knocking over the financial system to the core, and that really spilt over globally. It's important to note that building societies, credit unions, although they don't have the word bank in their term, are governed exactly the same as banks. So where do banks get their money to lend you? The consumer for the mortgage. Where do they actually get the money? Well, banks collect savings from households and businesses and use these funds to make loans to those who want to borrow. 
The banks are the lenders and the consumers are the borrowers. And as a reward to savers, the banks must pay an interest to them. Now, the rate at the moment is very minimal, even in the term deposit side of things. And this is their main funding costs. On the other hand, banks receive interest payments on loans they lend out to consumers. This is their revenue stream. This is the fundamental transmission of monetary cycle to economic cycle. In other words, this is one of the ways money cycles through the economy to create economic output. So what are some of the other ways banks actually fund themselves? They can raise money through equity stakes. They can issue bonds, short-term debt or long-term debt, which is basically debt instruments. That's what bonds are. Refer to my episode on bonds in episode 53, where I go into detail about this. The wholesale markets, this means banks lend each other money at wholesale rates, which then get lent out to consumers at retail rates. And securitization. this means mortgages are bundled up and sold as financial products, which investors buy and any interest generated is split between the investors and the people that are actually securitize it. How much does savings actually account for the bank's funding model? About 50%. The rest is actually from equities and bonds and other funding streams. Now, I was actually quite surprised how much of our money the bank uses to lend out to make money on. So 50% of the money that's being lent out is our money, the money that we put into the bank. And the rest of the money is actually coming from other funding streams. So if 50% of banks' funding model comes from deposits, and if non-bank lenders can't hold deposits, where do non-bank lenders get their funding from? That's a good question. Most of the time, they rely on the wholesale money markets to get their funding. Then they on-sell those funds to you, the retail customer. They pay interest on the money they borrow and they charge interest on the money they lend. The difference is their profit, less costs. So now that we know how banks make money, how non-bank lenders make money, what are some of the advantages of non-bank lenders? Now, because banks have to abide by APRA and ASIC and Uniform Consumer Code, they usually have stricter criteria to lend money whereas non-bank lenders have to abide by ASIC and Uniform Consumer Code and not APRA, so they have more leniency and in terms of methods of assessing your loan eligibility. Now, because they access money at wholesale rates, sometimes they're more competitive than larger banks. And because they have less overheads, for example, non-bank lenders don't really need many physical stores with ATMs and staff because they're not holding deposits. They can be leaner, they can be more efficient and operate their business at a lower cost. And the lower cost is passed on to the consumers, hopefully. Their ongoing fees and setup fees is often lower than the bank fees due to leaner business structures. And usually turnaround times are shorter because they're a smaller organisation, so they're more nimble, so they can get things done more quickly. And of course, they can possibly offer more personalised service than larger bank overlords. What are some of the disadvantages then of non-bank lenders? Well, they can't hold deposits and can't provide a full range of services, So if your expectation is to have a one-stop shop for everything, it's not possible. Limited physical presence, less humans and more online services. And they have a fewer loan product options compared to traditional bank lenders. And they're really not great for temporary or casual employees. But to be honest, nor are the big banks. And the non-bank lenders are a little bit more vulnerable to economic situations. In fact, during GFC, non-bank lenders share of the mortgage market reduced from 10% to 2.5%. And since then, the government, 
the Australian Officer of Financial Management has stepped in and offered more protections because for the government, more competition is good. So those are the pros and cons of non-bank lenders. What happens though when a non-bank lender collapses? Is that a risk? Look, business collapse is always a risk. Any business can collapse at any time. Let's not forget Lehman Brothers. They collapsed and they were once off one of the world's premier investment banks. When non-bank lenders collapse, usually it means another lender will usually come in and buy them out. And if you don't like the new lender's policies and products, you can still switch. One of the ways non-bank lenders kept their customer base about 10 years ago is by having exorbitant exit fees. But my understanding is exit fees for mortgages are no longer a thing, which provides more freedom to consumers to switch. But I think this is only for loans from July 2011. So if you got a loan before July 2011 you need to check with your non-bank lender about whether there's any exit fees. So I hope this clarifies non-bank lenders. I think there's a lot of positives there, but personally, I just can't be bothered having multiple accounts. I prefer to have the majority of my accounts with one bank who holds my cash. I want my money easily available. I want to view all of it in the one place. Am I paying a premium for that? Quite possibly. It just makes my life easier, more efficient, I think it's important you do your sums for that. Nowadays, I'm valuing my time more and more and sometimes happy to pay a bit of a premium for that convenience. That's about it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Now, before we finish up, recently I got contacted by a physiotherapist who explained in 2022, so far this year, they've started focusing on their investments and have now automated 20% of their after-tax money into their investments It took them about a week to decide on their investments and about an hour each fortnight when they get paid to set it all up. They contacted me to explain how easy it was and they were really perplexed why they hadn't done it all these years. It's these sorts of stories that really give me great joy and is exactly why I produce these episodes. So if that physiotherapist is listening, congrats and thank you for following my episodes. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or why don't you just leave a five-star review and rating on all of the platforms? That's even better. And please leave a positive review. I love reading reviews, especially positive ones. If you want any feedback or anything like that, please contact me via Twitter or Facebook. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to the podcast. So please keep them coming. This is Devraga from My Melanie Money Medical. And until next time, please... Make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 